And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be. Welcome to the other side of midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn. Well, it used to be that way, when almost anything can happen. Now, of course, it's uh, 24-7, so maybe I should kind of change this approach to the show. But I'll never put this on at noon, because it just does not belong at noon. It belongs on the other side of midnight. Hey, we have got some really intriguing, on several fronts, breaking news. It's very hard, you know, when you do a show like this, to kind of catch the, the front of the wave and to be part of something that's unfolding in real time. Well, tonight we have two major stories that are kind of connected to the conversation that's going to take place between Rick and Laura and me for the rest of the evening. So let me uh, direct our new listeners to where you want to go, because remember, this is a program that has images. It has links. It just doesn't have our faces on it. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Oh, I love radio. Anyway, uh, what you want to do is you go to the homepage, which is the other side of midnight.com. You click on that. That will take you to our URL, our homepage. And then you're going to want to click on tonight's banner, which says, what happens next? Earth's hyperdimensional astrology post-Trump with Rick Levine and Laura London. And we'll get to those folks uh, in a moment. Then you want to click on that. That takes you to the guest page tonight. And then you have fast links under it. Uh, What you want to do is click on Richard. That's my fast links in radio with pictures. Um, Our number one story tonight is the same as it was last night. If you have type O blood, you have a 13% chance, according to very large trials now, uh, of living through this thing, this whatever this thing is that we're living through in 2020. 13%, that's not trivial. That's pretty significant. So all you folks out there who do not have type O blood, you need to be obviously more cautious. And again, as I said last night, it's so simple. Masks and distance, masks and distance. This has been the way to defeat pandemics of everything, every airborne disease for literally hundreds of years. So why are we divided as a country to where half the country is doing it and the other half says over my dead body, which in some cases turns out to be literal. Anyway, item number two, this is the breaking news. As I told you last night, the Chinese had successfully entered lunar orbit with a very sophisticated unmanned mission, Chang-5. Remember, Chang refers to the Chinese goddess of the moon. Oh, I should have put the um, the Chang-3 uh, thing up there so people could kind of get familiar with uh, the goddess of the moon and the Chinese mythology and what they're up to. Um, well, I'll, I'll, when Kanthea gets back, is not with us tonight because she's taken couple of days off for an incredibly well-deserved vacation. I talked to her this afternoon from the middle of nowhere. Both of us are in the middle of nowhere. And she sounded, frankly, happier than I've heard her in months. She was with her sons. They were having a late Thanksgiving dinner on the weekend. And I'm almost thinking that we ought to just give her another two weeks off. And we're doing fine. And, you know, she needs the resuscitation time. Anyway, she talked beautifully, you know, more like the Kinsia I've known for previous years. And so when she gets back, I will have her put up the Chang 3 um, post that I wrote several years ago in, what, 2013, I guess, describing the Chinese philosophy, how they're approaching their lunar investigations, what they hope to find, what they did find on Chang 3, which, of course, landed on the moon at 44 North, and 19.5 West, which, of course, when I went to the Chang 3 website back in 2013 and found it filled with tetrahedrons, I knew they knew, we knew they knew, we knew. In other words, that can be an infant regression that goes on forever. The point is the Chinese know exactly what's there. They have an agenda which involves both the ancient civilization and the physics, and even though they come not within 20 light years of this in their public statements, the things they're not saying are very, very important to figuring out what they're up to. Anyway, yesterday, they uh, went into lunar orbit. Today, at the uh, 
a crack of dawn here in the uh, great American Southwest, something like 5 or 6 a.m. my time, they circularize the orbit of the very sophisticated robotic, robotic assemblage of spacecraft. There's, there's like four spacecraft that are part of this, this uh, melange that is, was all together. As of late this afternoon, <clears throat> from our Chinese sources, which uh, if you go to that link there, I think you will find the, the new information, uh, item number two. They separated the two sets of spacecraft the lander and the ascent stage that they'll stuff about four pounds of lunar material into and then rocket it back into lunar orbit. Just like Apollo, they have a two-component landing system, like the LEM, and they have an ascent stage, like the LEM. They stuff it with four pounds of material, like the astronauts bringing back their lunar samples. They then rocket this thing off from Oceanus Procellarum, a place, a hill, <clears throat> a broad feature about 75 miles across and about 3,000 feet high, which here is a respectable hill. And they're going to sample from that, quote, hill, that volcanic uh, hill. They're telling everybody that's what it is. I think it's more interesting, but we'll, we'll get into that later. And then when they launch this ascent capsule back into lunar orbit, Again, like Apollo, they're going to rendezvous with another spacecraft, like Apollo, separate and put the set material material into the uh, other rocket, which then will depart lunar orbit, like Apollo, for a fall back to Earth of something like 112 hours. Now, we had originally been told that the landing was supposed to take place sometime this afternoon. Sunday afternoon in the U.S., 29 November. It's now been delayed or maybe not. We're not quite sure because the Chinese are being very, 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 very closed mouth. They do not cover these things live except, you know, kind of like the old Soviet Union when, they're, when they've succeeded. So we're kind of guessing and there's a lot of Weibo stuff and Chinese sources, you know, tweeting and Weiboing. So that's one of those links that I have there in number two. Sometime in the next couple of days, between now and Wednesday, which is December 2nd, I believe, their intention is to land, to pick up the samples, both with a scoop and a drill, stuff about four pounds of material into the ascent stage, and then send it off back to lunar orbit to do its rendezvous, its transfer, and then the trip back home, landing, we believe, somewhere around December 16th. So depending upon whether the Chinese are happy or <clears throat> sad with what they get, we could find out before Christmas what it is that they return to Earth, either directly or there are leaks even in China. So anyway, that's one of our developing stories. To the other story, because this is, as I was telling Stephen last night and Laura, this seems to be the kind of moment of disclosure, the beginning of disclosure of a whole bunch of stuff that we have not been privy to from official sources. It's conceivable that the Chinese are planning to announce that they have found the remnants, the mineralogical or chemical or whatever remnants, uh, material remnants of an ancient culture on the moon. Now, I do not put that at a high probability. That may leak out later, but they certainly landed on a feature which based on our research and a lot to my late friend and colleague, uh, Stephen Troy, if the uh, Mons Rumker, it's a Latin for, you know, mountain of Rumker, named after a famous uh, astronomer a couple of centuries ago, if, if Rumker is in fact an analog of the so-called Marius Hills, named after another famous Middle Ages astronomer named Marius, um, which on Steve's data looked clearly artificial. I mean, you can see the rooms, you can see the cubicles, you can see the, the you know, buried structures. If in fact Rumker is the same thing as Marius, then the Chinese either are going to be really surprised or, and I don't think they are, 
they are going to play this in the long game, and there may be some time-release aspirin hints. Anyway, watch carefully this unmanned robotic Chinese mission to the moon, Chang 5, because it could be something that is going to change the paradigm. And why do I say that? Well, because the Chinese tonight also have a, an unmanned spacecraft, very elaborate, very complex robot, en route to Mars. Remember, they launched before we launched uh, Perseverance, our new rover, and they're planning to hang around in Mars orbit for several months before they land. Uh, one can wonder why they want to do that. Maybe they want to pick uh, the right landing site to show interesting stuff. Why would I say that? Well, if you look at their poster, and we'll go into all this in more detail uh, next weekend on Saturday when the, we assemble the gang and we talk about uh, Moon and Mars and China and U.S. and East-West relations and a new administration and what could be portended by the fact that when they launched their mission to Mars a few months ago, they used as their puff piece, as their background poster uh, for their lander, their artistic rendered lander on the surface, they used a borrowed Curiosity rover shot from NASA. And lo and behold, it wasn't just any old image of Mars. It was an image of Mars showing stunning ruins in the background, crystal clear, undoubtedly crystal clear, which, of course, we'll all show again and talk about uh, next Saturday night. The other story, the other breaking story, of course, has to do with the connecting blue in this disclosure model that we're now in the season of people finally telling us the truth about what's out there and also what's down here. Because you've all heard the story now of the Utah monolith. And if you go to items number three and four and five and six and seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, and twelve, oh, there's a thirteen. Look at all those in your copious spare time, either during the show or um, afterwards, and you'll see the progression of this story, um, including the fact that uh, after the uh, Utah Department of Public Service or Public Safety um, sent uh, four guys over this site in Utah to do a kind of a count of uh, uh, bighorn sheep, and one of the biologists aboard looked down and saw a sun glint and said, wait a minute, go back. There's something down there. This story has unfolded of this 12-foot-high equilateral triangle-shaped monolith <clears throat> sitting on the floor of a small box canyon on the very flat level, you know, alluvial floor, um, and stunningly reminiscent in many, many minds of the monolith in Arthur Clark and Stanley Kubrick's fame 2001, except that monolith was a slab. This monolith was an equilateral triangle, which of course, as I've said many times is a tetrahedron in two dimensions. So whoever was behind this, and I went through a whole bunch of numbers last night, it's located at 19.5 times two, give or take. What are the odds of that? It was located in the canyon. Notice I say was. I'm going to get to that in a moment. In exactly the right position so it could be angled with one point of the equilateral triangle facing a cleft in the cliff of the canyon directly. And the angle, if you look down on item number, what is it? What is it? Item number five. This is a Google Earth shot looking down from orbit. You can see the monolith and the shadow there from sometime around October of 2016 is when this thing appeared, and it's been there over five years. Um, it was angled precisely off due north to face that canyon at 19.5 degrees. So that's is where things get really, really, really intriguing, because if you look at number six, that's a, a screen grab from the video shot by the state of Utah P, uh, D, DPS crew, Department of Public uh, Safety. That's one of the biologists wearing a green jumper. Uh, and you can see the top of the obelisk there, which of course shows that it's an equilateral triangle and it's pointed toward that cleft in the cliff. 
So then you go down to number seven. This is a new story that uh, Steve broke last night on the other side of midnight, because apparently sometime in the deep night of the of Friday night, grading into Saturday morning, somebody came in and took the monolith away. But wait, wait, there's more, as they say in those old commercials, because if you click on number eight, this is a super image that uh, Laura found. It's got all kinds of amazing clues in the background on the cliff face. And there is four tourists, four guys standing there next to the only thing that whoever robbed the obelisk from the canyon left. The top, the equilateral triangle of thin stainless steel of which the original was composed. And if you look really close up on some of the videos that are all over Instagram and YouTube and whatever, you'll see there are little uh, screw holes in the top. So this thing could be, you know, bolted on to the uh, top of the other three vertical sides, making a 12 foot tall obelisk. Now, what's really interesting is if you look to the right of those four guys, just four average guys, one of them nicely holding a mask on the left, you'll see a, what's called a cairn. Uh, a cairn is a pile of rocks that explorers for thousands of years have piled up in strange places to kind of mark something important. If you look at some of the old uh, Antarctic expeditions or Arctic expeditions, uh, primarily in the Antarctic because there are rocks there. In the north, of course, there's nothing but ice. You'll find that they mark important places with cairns. Or if you look at the uh, first Egyptian explorers, mark important places with cairns. Well, this cairn, if you look at it and click on it and blow it up, make it big, and then you can actually click on it again and make it really big. Um, right next to the uh, uh, equilateral triangle steel plate, which they tipped up so you can see it in three dimensions, which of course makes it look like a tetrahedron, there's this cairn of piled up rocks. And I counted them, one, six, seven. Oh my gosh, seven rocks, seven tetrahedral spins of a tetrahedron, anyone? In other words, I'm firmly of the opinion that whoever put this thing there after it was found and all the tourists descended on it, and there's some pretty wild photographs. There are people dancing around it. There are people cooking around it. I mean, you know, tourists are tourists, right? I think whoever put it there came back in the middle of the night on Friday night, the 27th, and took it away and knew how to take it away so that there's nothing left in the ground but three slices made with a concrete saw when which they had poured epoxy and they had literally planted this very precisely made obelisk out of stainless steel, hollow inside so it was relatively light, and they planted it and anchored it with epoxy to the bedrock underneath the alluvial dirt or whatever. And then they came back when they saw all the tourist nonsense and they took it away. Now, why do I think it was stolen back by them and not by somebody else? The answer is the leftover remaining equilateral triangle. If you're just a thief and you want a really cool souvenir for your living room, I used to know someone who lived at MIT many, many years ago who had literally bought um, the casing of an old Titan II ballistic missile and had it in their living room. So every time you entered their apartment, there was this huge missile extending up from the floor through the ceiling. People collect the damnedest things. So whoever wanted to in the model that someone just randomly wanted to collect this thing, the question then would be, well, if you want to collect something that's, quote, really weird and amazing and has been now written up all over the world. Why wouldn't you take the whole thing? Why would you leave the most important part, the tetrahedral clue that there's deep mathematics to this site? There is coded information as to why this little Canyon and not some other Canyon in Utah or Idaho or New Mexico, et cetera, et cetera. And why would you, before you left, up a cairn of seven rocks because you're trying to send a higher level tetrahedral message. So I think the guys that took it away were the same guys that put it there in the first place. Now, 
The canyon itself is amazing. And Laura found some of these really astonishing images. So you're going to want to, in your copious spare time, go through those. And uh, we'll go back to the other side of midnight to the guest page. Just keep scrolling down. I mean, look at number nine. This idiot sitting on top. I mean, people are really dumb. Tourists are dumb, dumb, dumb. Number 10 is really intriguing. And I'm not going to tell you where it is because I want you to really examine the walls of this canyon. Okay. But oh, I'll, I'll give you a hint. I found literally this afternoon, based on this image that Laura unearthed, which is a wide angle panorama taken from a very important A elevation and B angle up on one of the walls of this little canyon. And there you can see tourists and you can see the rock that Keith thinks has some interesting inscriptions on it. And I do too. You can see the backdrop and there's all kinds of amazing things to look at and study and kind of grok a term that some of you will know and many of you will not. And there's the tetrahedron. Well, somewhere on the right hand side, I'm not going to tell you where of that wall behind the tetrahedron behind the three dimensional obelisk, lifting up the, 2D equilateral triangle into 3D, which mathematically makes it a stand-in for a tetrahedron. There is a double inscribed tetrahedron carved into the walls of the canyon, exactly as Robin found at Coral Castle when we first visited there when I had the heart attack 20-some years ago. And she looked across as we entered the, uh, the entrance and she said, Oh, my God, look at that. And she pointed, and all across the Coral Castle, you know, complex on the far wall cut into the rock was exactly the same double tetrahedron symbol, meaning, of course, the physics, the torsion field, the morticular nature of the matrix in which our reality is embedded. Whoever did this in terms of the obelisk, they knew that this had been memorialized, this physics, in the very walls of this canyon. And how many hundreds or maybe thousands of people now have been in here? And have you heard anybody? Have you seen anybody writing anything anywhere all across the Internet as to what's on the walls of the canyon? No, they're all focused on the obelisk. So for whatever reason... I think I've made a plausible case that the owner of the obelisk or owners came back, removed it, leaving the one clue, the top plate, the equilateral triangle, to reinforce the message, think the physics, think the physics, think about tetrahedrons, and think about our hidden, ancient, ancient history. And you can go through the rest of the images and have fun and look at all that. Um, what do we got? We're about 25 minutes after the hour. So let me introduce my guests of the evening because we're going to have a lot of stuff to talk about, including this. Um, Rick Levine is our guest, a professional astrologer since 1976. Rick has become a respected leader in the global astrology community. He is the past president of the Washington State Astrology Association, co-founder of StarIQ.com, a founding trustee of Kepler College and co-author of eight years of Barnes and Noble's annual Your Astrology Guide. Rick wrote a daily horoscope column for nearly 17 years, delivered by the Internet to millions of readers per day throughout tarot.com. His expanded daily Planet Pulse is still available on Instagram at Rick Levine Astrologer and on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Rick Levine uh, Astrologer. He is the subject of a DVD, Quantum Astrology, Science, Spirit, and Our Place in the Cycles of History. His internet videos reach tens of thousands of people every month. And in 2018, he was awarded the prestigious International Astrologer of the Year Award by the Krishnamani Institute of Astrology in Kolata, India. And without further ado, welcome back to the other side of midnight, Rick. Which side of midnight are we on? Thanks for having me. Nice to be back. Depends on which side of the planet you're on. Okay, before we yeah. get into the meat of this, uh, Laura London's also going to join us. Now, the reason I asked Laura is because we're going to be talking about consciousness and trends and 
what's gone on with our society and what could go on. Laura London studied experimental psychology at the University of Washington and earned her undergraduate degree in neuropsychology from a private Jesuit institute. After working for many years in neurology, neuroimaging, and nuclear medicine at the University Hospitals of Cleveland and its VA psychiatric hospital, she left that scene and entered into a 17-year Jungian analysis, sending her deeply into the work of Carl Gustav Jung. She attended a wide variety of lectures, workshops, and seminars with notable Jungian analysts and authors and worked closely with the Jung Association of Central Ohio and C.G. Jung Center in Chicago. In 2015, she created the podcast, Speaking of Jung, interviews with Jungian analysts, which led her to Zurich, Switzerland, to visit the places where Jung lived and worked. And for the past five years, she's interviewed over 50 certified Jungian analysts in an effort to bring the theories and application of Jungian analysis to a wider segment of the general public. Welcome back, Laura. Hi, Richard. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me tonight. Okay. Um, okay. We've got about what five minutes. Let me look here. No less. We've got three minutes till the bottom of the hour. Um, let's have some brief comments about you know the, the breaking news stories, and then we'll pick things up on the other side of the break. Who wants to go first? I'll go don't first. Every, don't everyone rush for the mic. I'm <laughs> rushing. I'm yeah. running over to it, Richard. This is reminding me of I sent you an email in early October because I had booked the editor of Jung's Black Books for oh, my podcast. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And I never in my wildest dreams thought that he would agree to do an interview. He also edited and co-translated Jung's Red Book, the famous The Red Book. So they released Jung's Black Books this year on October 13th. And when we were exchanging emails, I'll make this brief. He said to me that he imagined the box because it's a seven volume set of Jung's black books, seven volumes. He imagined the box that holds the set as resembling something, something, excuse me, resembling the monolith in Kubrick's 2001. (laughs) It is a tall kind of narrow. It's very tall black box. It's a slip case. So it's open on one side that holds the seven volumes. And I was, as you would say, stunned that a professor of, of um, German languages and at, he's at university college, London, that he would reference the monolith in Kubrick's 2001. So, you know, it had been a long time since I saw that movie. So would of course I wrote be, to you. Would, would this be termed a Jungian synchronicity? I think so, because <laughs> ever since then, I've been seeing the monolith, things shaped like the monolith and references to the monolith everywhere. And then when this news hit, I, I, I first thought it was a, a joke, I, I, or fake news. <laughs> I, I didn't believe it. So okay, but the whole hold there. Exploded. Let's continue this after the break. I have been wanting to play this song in the break for months. One of my favorite television shows, which is now so appropriate, given where the tetrahedral monolith was built. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the wild, wild west. Thank you. 
And that, as they said, is all they wrote. Okay, guys, uh, we're going to skip the bottom of the hour break because I, I really want to get back to this conversation. Rick, is it your idea that something is kind of hanging in the ether, waiting to be born, kind of uh, full-blown, that we're about to be inundated with something really, really, really cool that's going to change everything and make 2020 remembrance perhaps uh, not the uh, Annus Horribilis that Queen Elizabeth called 1992, but maybe something much, much more important, interesting? I've been saying for years that 2020 would be a major and memorable year for for uh, civilization for a long time. I have not stepped that claim back based upon what's already happened this year. And I think that the last month of the year, as we move from November into December, uh, I think we have another level of something to occur. Uh, what that may be, uh, there I will step back and let reality define itself as it does so well. However, yes, the answer to your question is yes. Mm-hmm. What was your question? The answer is yes. <laughs> Laura, back to you. The, the idea of synchro- – for people that do not follow Jung, <clears throat> and there's a lot of people, define what I'm kind of excited about in terms of synchronicities. What what was Jung's definition and what, are, what were his criteria besides the idea that it was really a bizarre coincidence? Well, it's a meaningful coincidence is what, what, how, how he describes synchronicity, a meaningful con- coincidence. And it is when the, an inner event and an outer event occur simultaneously, not at exactly the same time. But so it's, it's a, it has those two components the inner and the outer. And it's so it's very different from simultaneity or what we would commonly refer to as a coincidence. Hmm. So how do, I mean, meaning is different for everybody. Right. So what's meaningful for you, I might say, and of course all the critics always say, ah, that's just a coincidence. I mean, I'm looking at all this compounded mathematics and then the surrounding surreal landscape of this little Utah Canyon. And there's no way I can be convinced this is all just coincidence. Well, I mean, it, it, it's not, but it, it, I'm sure that <laughs> I'm sure that this monolith out in the desert isn't of interest to everyone. Uh, it is of enormous interest to you because of the the things that you're interested in and you are seeing the geometry and we haven't talked about the faces that we're seeing in the rock walls are we going to get to that yeah right know. well we're not, we have plenty we have three hours we can play yeah our heart's content we're not right. constrained so i thought it was really interesting when you mentioned that no one in the media was referring to the actual canyon or the the rock formation. Well, wait, wait. it's not just the media. When when you say media, I'm thinking of like you know networks or New York Times or whatever, mm-hmm. <clears throat> or even the the guys from the state of Utah who landed to look at it. I'm talking about all these ordinary folks that took the time and effort and trouble to a figure out where this thing was. Yeah. Because of course the state didn't want people crawling all over it, and they did the damnedest, dumbest thing they could have imagined. They made it into a mystery. They made it into a challenge. So, of course, people on Reddit had to find it. Uh, but then when everybody goes and finds it, nobody, and I mean nobody, has put a post out there on Instagram or you know, their, their you know, Facebook page or whatever talking about the critical dimensionality of the figures, the fact that these shapes, these faces, these representations are not like Native Americans, you know, 2D painted or, you know, inscribed into the rock pictographs or, or um, uh, petroglyphs, but something of massive scale requiring, according to one of the artists, people in our team, Arthur, uh, Andrew, Andrew Curry, a really sophisticated technology, something that I don't think we, we currently have. Well, maybe we don't have it in public. It may be part of the secret space program, but it's, it's a physics that literally has to be able to reshape matter. 
at an elemental, molecular, or crystalline level. This isn't just a lot of rock rubbing with, you know, dirt and grit and sand. So the fact that people are there and they're taking photographs and they're cavorting around and they're balancing like that one idiot on top of the uh, obelisk and nobody's looking at the context. I'm just blown away how unobservant people in the 21st century have become. Well, it doesn't surprise me. It does me. <laughs> in the least. In the least. So, you know, going back to synchronicity, it, it's about the convergence of the inner and the outer. And, and, and something that I neglected to mention is that it's a causal. One doesn't cause the other. So well, that's wait, another. You, you, you mean the, 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 the foundation of a synchronicity? Yes. Yes. You know, correct. the first. This, this is Rick. Let me jump in here. For no, no, that's exactly what I want you to do. I love having yeah. conversations on the show. I don't so, like interviews. So um, one of the first places Jung wrote about synchronicity was in what was called the psychological preface to the Wilhelm Bain's translation of the I Ching. And in it, he talked oh, about grief. how we're all supposed to know that, right? Well, yeah, sure. Um, and, and so um, in it, he talked about how Western civilization's understanding of time was based upon um, Archimedean uh, causal, you know, uh, uh, cause and effect, that, that we looked at time as linear, and yet there were cultures that actually had other understandings of time, and the I Ching, which came out of the Chinese culture, understood time differently and understood that each moment had a uh, what's the right word? Um, had had a sense, a a a, a feeling, a, a connection to everything that happened in a moment. This incidentally um, is part of one um, one route that one might take to explain or at least to elucidate astrology that everyone is born in a moment and therefore contains properties of that moment. But I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. I want to stay with synchronicity. Because what Jung said was that in the Chinese way of looking at things, that because every moment had a quality, that was the word I was looking for before or earlier, that, um, that when things happen in a moment, that every moment is in time is coming from another moment in time, and then going toward a different moment in time. And the I Ching or the Book of Changes actually had a way of looking at that. And so in order to test this idea, Jung in this, this forward to the I Ching said, I'm going to ask the I Ching a question. And he then basically analyzed what the I Ching's answer was and used it to describe how the human mind creates what Laura so rightfully called the connection, the psychic connection between the inner and the outer, um, because things that co happen at the same moment in time, as we say, are coincidental. And although synchronicity is coincidental, in the West, we use the word coincidence or coincidental as a way of minimizing importance. And in other cultures, things that are coincidental, just because they happened in the same moment, they are immediately elevated into an importance because they are of the same of the same quality. And so it's something that we miss is a little bit of a nuance in the dismissiveness of the word coincidental uh, because it lacks the ability um, to to create meaning out of things. And that's we in the West, we often look at things and we don't understand that there is a deeper, a hermetic, a hidden meaning behind what it is that's obvious on the surface. Well, there is this really resistant, stubborn, almost epoxy-like matrix in which we've been embedded since what, the 17th century, maybe 16th, the so-called Newtonian clockwork universe, where yes, everything- the Age of Enlightenment, which I have a, a couple of contemporaries that call it the Age of Endarkenment. Well, really, because, because it, it basically sold a model that the universe is a clock. It's impersonal. It's unconscious. It's mechanistic. It just keeps ticking. It doesn't care what we think, what we feel, whatever. And in that universe, the idea that two separate things can be related at some level resonantly 
is anathema to the very foundation of Western science now. Absolutely. And incidentally, I would just like to very briefly introduce another word that many people who use the um, idea and concept of synchronicity don't know because Jung didn't work with it, but it's a real word, a real concept, and that's diachronicity. And diachronicity is things that have meaningful connection, but not in the same moment in time. And it's, uh, and so synchronicity is really only half of the story of how meaningful uh, um, connections can be made that are on the surface a causal. And it was Jung who defined synchronicity as the, quote, a causal connecting principle, end quote. Hmm. Laura? Right. And you asked for the criteria. Sorry, this mic is new. And is that okay? It's done fine. Yeah. Okay. So the two factors are an unconscious image. If, if we're getting technical here, an unconscious image comes into consciousness either directly or indirectly in and indirectly could be in the form of a dream or an idea, a thought, an internal state. And then the second factor is an objective situation coincides with that. Do you guys so, remember remember a guest I had on? I've had on several times, Dean Radin with the yeah. Noetics Institute. Oh, yeah. Sure. And, I know, okay. I know Dean Radin. Yeah. And Dean Radin talked a great deal on the show some years ago about 9-11 and the eggs at Princeton and looking for randomness or less randomness in the number generators, these so-called eggs. And then they correlated this from all over the planet through the internet. And they looked at correlations between events, major events that will change consciousness and whether these little randomized mathematical uh, generating eggs would go into a partial resonance. In other words, they're, 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 they're spitting out of numbers would become less random and more organized when there was some kind of cohering event. And the biggest takeaway from that research was four hours before 9-11, uh, the eggs went nuts. And you can really see the spike, indicating at some level that we don't understand that somehow propagating backward through time, the events, the shock, the consciousness, the emotions, all that we think of around 9-11 was propagating back through our 3D time frame to where it was disturbing the randomness of the eggs. Okay, let me fast forward the film now, Laura, and talk about your, your Jungian friend. Wait, wait, is it, wait, one second, Richard. The work that, that Dean Radin was referencing was a work by the guy, a guy named um, uh, Robert John, and he wrote a book called Margins of Reality. He ran the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Center, and that's where this work came from. Yeah, and wasn't there a guy named Roger also associated with it? Perhaps. A, a physicist? Anyway, I yeah. Mean, yeah. I, I, I didn't mean that uh, Raiden was part of the <clears> – <throat> he was an extended no, part of I know of the, that, but no. I just wanted to give people the reference if they wanted to – Margins of Reality is the book that really talks about this whole uh, distemporal, this – this uh, connection of of uh, of meaning that's uh, through time that co seems to have some sort of retro causational uh, Im impact. Okay, Laura, if you can make a note to send to Kinthea when we get her back from whatever dimension she's having fun in, and we'll put that in Rick's section so people can go and click on the link and all that. Yep. Thank you. Okay, <clears throat> back to Laura. Um, your friend suddenly out of nowhere comparing this epic work to the black monolith in 2001. I'm wondering if we're seeing the same effect echoing back through time from this whole obelisk event and the world going nuts over 2001 and the monolith and all that. And somehow he was picking up on that metaphor, that comparison. And that's why he suddenly out of the blue in a way that you had no way of knowing he was going to do it, made the comparison. Mm -hmm. Another thing that was interesting about him is he started, so this is the black books. He started looking through the black books so, because they were written in German and they needed to be translated into English and then they needed to be edited into these volumes. He began that work in 2001. And whoa, 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 whoa. Wow. <laughs> 
That's crazy. <laughs> right. And then there was another reference to 2010, which I actually wa- – so I watched both movies back-to-back. And, Richard, you don't reference the 2010 movie that much. Because it's not as mystical or as deep as 2001. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually worked with Peter Hyams on 2010. I knitted him together with with uh, Arthur. Peter Hyams was a movie director, many well-known films, was in Los Angeles and Hollywood. <clears throat> Arthur was in Sri Lanka. And so in the old days, the way you would work together is you'd either phone people up, which used to be very expensive, or you would ship by U.S. mail manuscripts back and forth, <clears throat> and the writer and the director would kind of you know collaborate that way. My contribution was I gave them the first computer interlink where they each could type on a computer and via the primitive, primitive internet and, and, a, and a friend of mine named Ren Breck in uh, Northern California, I was able to connect Arthur and Peter together to write the script of 2010 in a way they would never have collaborated in a pre-internet era. So uh, that's probably one of the reasons why I don't mention it because, uh, well, I like 2001 so much better than 2010. 2010 was too kind of pat. It was there were no mysteries left. There was no like allure of your own imagination, your own projection. Whereas Stanley was past master, and that's the difference between two directors. Kubrick was a genius. Peter Hyams was a very, very good director. Light years are different. Got it. So. He started working on uh, tr- translating these books in 2001, and then and that was for the Red Book, um, because Jung wrote the Red Book based on he pulled stuff from the Black Books and put them in this in calligraphy in the big leather-bound Red Book, and then once the Red Book was published in 2009, they began work on the Black Books in 2010. Ah. So. Those are the two years that that are very significant to the eventualcation of the Black Books in 2020, this unusual year. So, yeah, uh, seeing the obelisk. And then, so, Richard, when I had reached out to you about that, you sent me a graphic from the Enterprise mission of the planet Jupiter – Oh, and yes, yes. So this was part of, I forget what anniversary it was of 2001. Okay. Well, we'd have to put it up, and I forgot to put it up tonight. But the, the shorthand version, and again, <clears throat> put this on the note. Excuse me. You can yeah. see you. Okay, sure. Um, I, I created this composite graphic going through the mathematical properties of the monolith in 2001 for an anniversary showing at the American Film Institute in Los Angeles or in Hollywood that I was taken to many, many years ago by uh, uh, Paul Davids. And I wanted to do something on Enterprise that would kind of encapsulate why 2001 was not just your average film. And the, the, the really amazing thing was in their original conceptual, you know, working together, uh, Arthur and Stanley wanted to create this, this teaching machine, this alien ET teaching machine that would appear throughout the film and would somehow punctuate human evolution and consciousness and and development. And Arthur proposed a tetrahedron. And there is a stunning piece of artwork, which I've got, which I will also send to uh, Kintia, make a note of that, uh, which basically shows one of these pre-film, pre-production uh, conceptual art pieces, which has the Discovery spacecraft, which was this, in 2001, hanging in Jovian orbit right beside this gargantuan, huge monolith with a doorway in its side. And the scale of everything is so amazing, you know, appropriate to Jupiter. And the point of the tetrahedron in orbit, somehow McCall got right because it's pointing directly at the great red spot on Jupiter, which, of course, is at 19.5 degrees south latitude. Well, that sounds just like the Utah monolith. Doesn't it? Yes, (laughs) yes, messaging. So then the question is, well, apparently in in, in a book that was written, published by Dell, called The Making of 2001, um, Arthur actually 
you know, recorded his conversation with Stanley about using a tetrahedron as the monolith. And Kubrick said, oh, no, 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 no. Pyramids are much too cliche. And in that sense, as an artist, he was correct. So what Arthur did was proverbially go back to the drawing boards and recreated the monolith, which has the mathematical dimensions of a circumscribing tetrahedron, which is where instead of the tetrahedron being inside a planet, showing you where the energy is coming up, it's a tetrahedron around the planet with the planet inside the tetrahedron. And that's the mathematics of the monolith. So the monolith is tetrahedral in a coded form, exactly like the guy's stainless steel creation in the Utah Canyon. Weirder and weirder and weirder. That's why I'm really intrigued with this damn story. Because again, going back to the Jungian idea, is it possible, boys and girls, Rick and Laura, that the shock waves of what's coming, Rick, and we'll get to that after the the top of the hour, are promulgating back through 3D time. So these hints of this stunning paradigm shift is aware and apprehendable by people who are sensitive enough or smart enough or plugged in enough to tell what's coming. And don't everybody speak at once. I'm going to pass that to Rick. Well, the answer, the answer is of course, uh, yes. And oh, there's um, never, there's and, never, of course. Everybody says that. Okay. The, in my, in my humble opinion, the answer is yes. And I have a story and some, some facts to back up that will take longer. And we should save this till the beginning of the next segment. Um, but well, retro causality, how the present impacts the past and how the future impacts, impacts the present is not just some crazy idea. It's something that is a uh, real thing in modern physics. Well, let's start the story now. We'll break for the commercial, which will give people time to think about what you're going to say between now and the top of the hour. And then we'll give them the climax on the other side. Got it. How long do we have? Uh, five minutes. Oh, oh, well, very, very simply, there is this. Um, man named Jack Sarfati. I don't know. Oh, if you know I know Jack. Jack. He's a brilliant, okay. far out, bizarre, crazy, out of the box, Trump maddened uh, physicist in well, northern okay. in Northern California. So, so uh, Jack was kind of I want to say laughed out of the uh, physics community in the United States um, for some mathematical work. And as you know, he is like a mathematician uh, par excellence. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is yep. brilliant. And topology is one of his, you know, um, well, the question that he asked as a as, as a Ph.D. theoretical physicist is, um, is, is it possible for things in the uh, present to or in the in the future to impact things in the present? And um, and he used one of like an Einsteinian um, quantum physics thought experiment. And here's the thought experiment. You're sitting at home one day, the telephone rings, you pick up the telephone, and the person on the other end of the phone identifies um, himself as you, but 30 years in the future. Oh, my gosh. Does this break any laws of physics? You mean and the the, 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 uh, the so-called grandpa uh, paradox, where if you go back and kill your grandpa, well, it's, it's kind you of a born. piece of that. It's not that per- exactly. Uh, the, que- the question really is, you know, does 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 something from the future interfering in the present moment, can it happen? And his answer, mathematically, um, unquestionably, yes. Oh. And, he, and, and again, it was, it was the beginning of him kind of, as you said, he's very far out. I mean, uh, and he ended up leaving the United States. He ended up going to teach for a number of years at Beerbeck. And you know who, what physicist was at Beerbeck in England, Beerbeck College? That's where David Bohm was. Oh. Uh, and, okay. and so... What happened is, you know, fast forward, I don't remember the number of years, 25, 30 years, and, um, and Jack Sarfati is back in the United States, and there is now, based upon this work that I mentioned from Robert John, uh, that's J-A-H-N, and the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Center um, at Princeton University, um, that 
there is this idea that they that that they found experimentally provable again and again and again that things in the um, future can impact events in the past and things in the uh, I'm sorry things in the future can impact things in the present and things in the present can act actually uh, change or impact things in the past and um, and there's a whole branch of physics now that's not experimental or theoretical. It's not theoretical, it's experimental, and it's called retrocausality, the physics of how quantum tunneling and, <laughs> and things actually going um, into other, into another, you know, whether it's a tachyon, hyperdimensional, whatever, can actually impact events. Um, and there's more to the story, but the answer to your question is yes. Of course hmm. it can. And I say, of course. <laughs> See, I always thought quantum theory was based on the idea that every decision, the whole idea of observers basically create reality, that particles are not doing anything unless you, an observer observes them interacting, and then they interact. On, on, on that basis, every event breaks with reality, and you get bifurcating multi-branches of, of blossoming universes each new universe, I mean, this sounds crazy, is because of a decision made, I say decision, an event that takes this turn or that turn. So I'm not quite sure in quantum theory how you could have retro causality in one dimension. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, A, I'm not a physicist, and B, I'm not limiting anything to one dimension. Hmm. Okay. Tell you what, hold it there. My guests this morning are Rick uh, Levine one of the world's most interesting astrologers, hyperdimensional astrologers. I've always wanted to see that as a term that was formalized. And also um, uh, Laura London, who was a Jungian specialist. And our fields are all colliding tonight with what's going on on planet Earth as maybe a portent of what is going to go on on planet Earth. I mean, a lot of interesting stuff. And if you think currently it's interesting, wait till you see what's going to happen next. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Thank mm-hmm. you.